The following audio is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. And last week, if you were with us, we talked about being adopted into the family of God and how wonderful of an adoption this is, that God adopts us into his family by his grace through faith, and we become heirs to righteousness. We become heirs to the promises of God. And so we're looking forward to this. And really, it seems like the first four chapters up to this point have been directing our attention towards something to come, something in the future. It's reminding us, look at what you have in Christ. Look at what you will have fully in Christ. And so it sets our attention on something forward. And now in verse 8, He's going to turn us around. Paul is going to turn his readers and us around. He begins with the word formerly. Look at how he starts verse 8. Formerly, he says. And here he wants to change our focus, not to the future, but something to the past. I have been reminded, seems like recently over the last couple weeks, of my hometown. For some reason, I've been thinking a lot of the past. I've been thinking a lot about growing up in uh, northern Kentucky and Cincinnati area. Um, watching my beloved Cincinnati Reds just like have a pitiful and brief postseason. Um, I don't even know who's in the World Series right now. You guys know? The answer is who cares? Okay. So, <clears throat> and, and I'm thinking about Cincinnati. I'm talking with a good friend on the phone, and he says, Guess where I am right now? And I say, Where are you? And he says, I'm on I 74. Now, that means nothing to you, but I-74 connects Indiana, Cincinnati, or Ohio, and, and Kentucky. It's the interstate that goes through there. And, and we're talking, and I'm talking with my friend, and we're having just a normal conversation about something unrelated. And, and throughout the conversation, he would just interrupt me and just say, wow, oh my goodness. And I said, what, man, what just happened? Did you just witness an accident? He said, no, it's just so beautiful here. And I said, oh, man. And so he would say these things, and I would be... I'd be thinking, I, these images would come in my mind, thinking about the, the rolling hills and the, the changes in the colors and, and just everything that I remember from, from my hometown that I haven't seen in, in over a decade. And so much has, I've been thinking about the past and, and I'm remembering who I am today is really shaped by, by my past. I, who I am today is shaped by so many of my experiences that, that have already happened. And then I also realized that who I am today is also shaped by, by what, what I am not yet and what hasn't happened even yet. So it's a focus on the future and what God promises to us. I'm shaped by that. And Paul here, by introducing another element, another dimension, he's, he's showing us that we are shaped by, by two big things. We're shaped by the gospel in us and the promise of who we are in Christ and as heirs, but we're also shaped by the former things. We're shaped by everything else. And these two things, these two influences are so readily available to lead us and to tell us how to live. The gospel is, is present and ready and available to equip us and lead us how to live and say, this is how you ought to live. Your identity is wrapped up in who you are and who you will be forever in Christ. And then everything else in the world will say, yes, but I am also would like to influence you and shape you and tell you who you are. You are who you once were, you know, the, the sins of your past and the baggage of your past and the, the things that you did that you regret. I mean, these things are also who you are. And so we have these competing 
voices, these competing influences that are trying to tell us this is who you are. And Paul calls these non-gods in our passage. He calls these non-gods the elementary principles. And basically what's going on here in this context is in this culture, in this first century culture that these Galatian Christians find themselves in, every basic element was, had a god tied to it. Fire and, and wind and, and earth and, and water and the sun and the moon and the stars. And all of these basic elementary principles had a god tied to it. And so functionally, in that culture, everything created could become a god. Everything created could be an idol that would influence us and lead us and, and guide us. And so the issue here that Paul wants to uncover for the Galatians and also for us is, is the same thing that, that we, we need to hear. And that is we're always worshiping something. We are never idle. We are never unreligious. We're always worshiping something. Even somebody who doesn't associate with a certain religion, Christianity or, or, or others, no one is truly unreligious. Everybody is worshiping something. Everybody is being led and guided by something. There's a quote, uh, a famous quote that says, the opposite of Christianity is not atheism, but idolatry. There's a Christian philosopher, Peter Kreeft, who says this. And I think what we would normally think is, yeah, if you're not a Christian, or the opposite, what's the, what's the most opposite of Christianity? Well, then it's atheism. It's to believe that there, there is no God. But really, the opposite of Christianity is idolatry, taking a good thing and putting it in the wrong place. And idols are good things. They're basic things that are made to be the motivator for what we do and who we are. Food, sex, money. These are just basic, everyday things, things that are good, Yet, if they're placed in the wrong place and position in our life, they become idols. The greatest danger is not that you and I would stop worshiping God. The greatest danger is that you and I would worship the wrong thing. And when we do this, we take a a good thing and we put it in an ultimate place in our life. We become slaves to it, as Paul says. And here's what he says. He says, these things, why would you want to be enslaved by these things? And these things that we put, good things that we have put in a greater position in our life, they enslave us. And so a good question is, well, how do they do that? They, they cause us to over-desire things that are not God. I'll give you a couple examples. Think of, think of lust, this temptation, the sin of lust. You know, lust does not mean this normal-sized desire that you have for something very wicked and evil. And if we believe that, that that lust is a normal desire that we have for something bad, which I think a lot of us have grown up to to believe, then something good we grow up to believing is something very ugly and very naughty and something very um, not from God. And so we feel gross when we participate in, in, when we think about uh, relationship, uh, sexual relationship, relationship with a spouse, or even thinking about, even when we're married, I found that my, before I was married, I, I knew that sex outside of marriage was bad. I knew that lust was bad. And then making this transition when I was married, trying to change everything that all I'd learned and so everything that I'd been taught growing up, that this was bad, this was bad, this was bad, and now I'm trying to embrace it as good. And it was somewhat of an awkward transition. 
So some of us have this confusing thing about our desires. And now, now think of it differently. Think of it not as a, a basic, normal-sized desire for something evil, but think about lust as a, an oversized desire for something good. We're desiring something out of proportion of how we should really desire it. And that's lust. And it's bad because it's an oversized desire or a misdirected desire for something good. Here's another example. Think of success, a very good thing, wanting to succeed, wanting to win, wanting to grow, wanting to um, promote and and be better, wanting to uh, get that job, get that promotion. But what happens when we fail? What happens when we let somebody down? What happens when you failed and, and you just can't forgive yourself because you feel so much guilt and shame that you failed and let somebody down? And you think, if I could just get it right, if I could just not mess up, then everything would be better. Everything would be better if I actually lived up to the expectations I have for myself and what other people have for me. And when we do that, we have an oversized desire for something good. We want it too much. We want to succeed too much. We want to please others too much. And it becomes an idol in our life. And so this thing is controlling us and motivating us. And that is why when we let somebody down, when we mess up, when we fail, we feel so guilty, so much shame, we just can't stop thinking about it. Because we have an oversized desire for something that is good. Here's a verse that really just makes my heart sink when I realize the the what what an idolatry, what idolatry is really is like. Look at verse 17 that we read in chapter 4. It says, They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. Every idol in our life, every good thing that is placed in the wrong place in our life will eventually say to us, Serve me. Do this for me. And, and why do we listen to that temptation? And Paul is exposing this. He says, if we submit to these things, if we have an oversized desire for good things, we become slaves and, and they, they tell us, they promote us, they make us feel good, but at the end of the day, they say, now I have you right where I want you. Now you must serve me. They flatter us. Idols flatter us. They, give us, they make promises that they can't keep. And why do we, why do we listen to that? Why do we fall into that kind of temptation? Here's my thought. That worshiping idols requires little, if any, faith at all. It requires no faith to lust in your heart. It requires no faith to have self-pity when you fail. It requires no faith to become angry with a person who has hurt you. It requires no faith at all to, have, to hold a grudge. No faith at all to gossip. It requires no faith to, to worship an idol. It, it requires no faith to, to sin and to fall into temptation. And faith in God and trusting in God is so difficult. It's so hard. It draws us out of comfort into an, a very unfamiliar territory. And it calls us to God, a place that is very unfamiliar to us, to many of us, that that closeness with God is so unfamiliar. And we don't know exactly how to live in that. And it's difficult. And so when we find a time that's difficult, we go back to a place that's comfortable. 
And this is what, hap- what is happening for the people that Paul is speaking to. So what are some non-gods for us? Maybe not specifically, but here's how you might be able to find some non-gods in your own life. Think of this. Non-gods are the things in our life that we go to when a life of faith becomes difficult. When pursuing God is hard. When growing in your faith becomes really challenging. Where do you go? Where is the place of comfort that is not God that you go to? That is the thing that you're a slave to. That is the thing that you're worshiping. That is the thing that you're making an idol. You know, normally we think of idolatry, we think of these, you know, something that we have, some kind of metal that we've melted down and shaped into some kind of animal that we would put in our house and we would actually pray to and worship. And and those are idols. But an idol is anything that we go to in place of God for comfort. If you and I, if we ever break commandments 3 through 10, all of those things of don't do this, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't cover your, your neighbor's things, don't uh, uh, honor or obey your parents. If we commit any of those sins, it's because we have first broken commandments 1 and 2. Have no other gods before me and love God with all your heart. Obeying God and having no idols Breaking those first two commandments are the reason why we break all the rest. And when we stop worshiping God, we go to this place of familiarity, this place of comfort. We go to things that fulfill us quickly and effortlessly. The root of all idolatry is this oversized desire for something that is not God. So whenever we sin, whenever we fall into temptation, this is a question we should ask. What is it? What is that? What is in the place of God that is causing me to do this? What am I elevating to a place above God and worship of God that is causing me to do this? It is an oversized desire for attention, for success, for companionship. Is it an oversized desire for, um, for something else other than God? When it comes to living by faith in the gospel here, there's a couple things we need to know. The first, one thing we need to know is what the gospel is, right? And that's what we've been spending the last six, seven weeks on, is, is looking at what is the gospel. I feel like I've been repeating myself every week and just in a new way, sharing this is what the scriptures say about the gospel. This is what it is. It is not a p- performance-based acceptance from God. It is a faith-based and promise-based based acceptance from God. Here's what the gospel is. But we also must know what is the gospel not, and that is where Paul shifts to with these people. He says, he's showing them, you must also, as you are scrutinizing and trying to figure out what the gospel is, you must also put effort into realizing what in your life is not the gospel, what in your life is a non-God, and how are you serving it? You know, consider the situation uh, when God rescued his people from Egypt. Many of you know this story. You understand the context here. God's people uh, came into Egypt, and it was just a, a small family at the time, and it grew to several million people, and they became slaves of Pharaoh. And so the Israelites were in Egypt for over 400 years as slaves. And they spent their days in hard labor, they're breaking their back, working their fingers to the bones, literally being under this oppressive and abusive rule of Pharaoh, and they would cry out to God and pray to God for rescuing, pray to God for a Redeemer to come along and rescue them from slavery. 
and God hears their cries, and he sends Moses, and Moses goes in with the power of God and rescues God's people from Egypt, and they, they, they flee Egypt, and they go into the desert towards a place that God calls them. And so they're going to the promised land. They're going towards the future. They're going towards the future promise that God has. And they find themselves in the desert, and they're running out of food. And what do they say? They say, we want to go back. They say, I wish I were back in Egypt. At least we had warm food. At least we had good meat. At least we had these things. And my question, as I think about these circumstances unfolding, I think, what, how could anybody do that? How could anybody feel that way? How could anybody return to a place of slavery after knowing the blessing of being free? And I think that story, among others, is so good for us to realize that temptation to return to a place of idolatry is never far from any Christian. It's never far from us. No one is, is, is too locked in to ever be tempted to return back to a place of comfort that will eventually just enslave us. You know, we hear voices just clamoring for us to come back. And if we listen, we find our minds flooded with the memories of how good life once was. Away from God. Like my thoughts of Cincinnati and, and, and thinking of the, the scenery and how I wish I could be there. You know, that's nothing bad, but also looking at my former life, how things were, in a way, they were easier. I didn't feel bad about my sin. I didn't feel bad about myself. I, I, could, I could sin against God, and, and, and my, my heart wasn't broken. There were a lot of things that were very comfortable about a life of sin. There were, very, there were a lot of things that were very comfortable about, about not knowing God. And there's always these voices that will come back and say, hey, wouldn't that be nice to not be in this struggle that you're in right now? Wouldn't it be nice to not have this difficulty of faith and, and God always working on you? Wouldn't you like to just have a break sometimes from all the things that God's teaching you? And the answer is, yeah, you know, I'd like a break. But here's the problem. We don't, there the two directions that we go, it's not that we have one direction of pursuing God and another direction of being idle. I-D-L-E, <laughs> idle of just being where we are. And I think we think of our relationship with God a lot like that. Well, I'm not growing, but I'm just kind of, I'm stale, I'm staying the same. And, and those two directions aren't, we don't really see that in Scripture. We see two directions, and one is we're growing in the gospel. And Paul even he says, I wish that you would, you would be formed in Christ, but you're returning to former things. The two directions are we're either growing in Christ or we are going back and worshiping former way without God. We're not staying the same. We're being led by something. We're worshiping something. It's either God or it's non-gods. He asked the question to them, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Knowing what you have in Christ and what he calls you to as an heir to share in all that he has, why would you go back to these worthless things? And then he says, I'm afraid that I've been wasting my time with you. Have I labored in vain for you? And it's important here to figure out what Paul is saying. Because that's, that's a harsh word. That would, that would really hurt me if anybody said that who was maybe leading me or discipling me. And if I failed and he said, man, you're just a waste of time. 
So what is Paul saying here? Is this a picture of, you know, a picturing a father practicing with his, his child how to, how to ride a bike? And week after week, they, they practice, and he's training, and, and, this, and the child keeps falling down on the bike, and eventually the father just gets fed up and just says, what's the point of being out here with you? You're just not getting it right. How crushing is that? But that's not what Paul is saying. Paul is, is, is showing us that his joy is so broken. His joy is broken up because what he desires most for them is that they would come to a place of resting so deeply in the gospel that the, even the thought of worshiping anything else would be so foreign, so wrong, so far from what they wanted. And Paul sees that it's not far from what they want. And his joy is ripped out because he loves them so much. He wants them to trust in God and pursue him and rest in nothing but the work of Christ. I imagine him saying, when, you stop, when will you stop thinking so much about how weak you are and how hard it is? And when will you begin believing in Christ that all of you need is met in him? That's his frustration. He says, there's something so available to you. When will you really grab that? When will you really rest in that? This is what he desires for them. And this is what I desire for you. That you in your challenges would face everything, that you would know what you have in Christ as you trust in Him by faith, knowing that everything that God has is yours, knowing that you and I share fully in Christ, that we are heirs to the promise of God. That there is nothing in our former life that could fulfill us the way that God has promised to. When will we really rest in that? And stop listening to that voice that says, wouldn't you really like to take a break from this struggle, from this sanctifying, from this work that God is doing? And Paul even says in this passage, he says so boldly, he says, become as I am. Fight the fight of faith with me. He says, I was with you and I had this ailment. I had this physical ailment. I, and, and you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ. You received me in my own weakness. So you know what it's like to, to wrestle through, to fight through these moments of pain and complication. You know what it's like, like I do, to not be discouraged in faith when things are hard. You know what it's like to keep going forward. So continue to do that even now. Do not shrink back. Rest fully in the hope of Christ. And I want to close with this story that Paul closes with. with this. He kind of wraps up this thought. And, and our passage today is 8 through 31. And we only read 8 through 20. Because I think 21 to 31, I just, it's a story. It's a narrative that Paul is talking about. He's, he's talking about a, a narrative history that they would understand. And so I want to tell this story to you as, if, as, as he tells it to them. He tells this story because the Galatians are trying to work their way to God through their own initiative. And they are trying to fix their own problems. But, but when they're trying to fix their own problems and, and by their own initiative, they're actually just creating more problems. And so he shares with them this story that is found in the Old Testament. An Old Testament story of a man named Abraham who had two sons with two different women. Sarah 
and Hagar. And this story reminds me of this nursery rhyme and their, their intention to fix their problems through their own initiative, but only making more problems. It's the story of the lady who swallowed a fly. Have you heard of that story? I don't know why she swallowed a fly. Perhaps she'll die. You've heard this? Okay. She swallowed a spider to catch the fly. Then she swallowed a bird to catch the spider. Then she swallowed a cat to catch the bird. And then she swallowed a dog to catch the cat. And she swallowed a cow to catch the dog. She, she swallowed a horse to catch the dog. Yes, there was an old lady who swallowed a horse. She's dead, of course. Yes. See, we, we, we know this. They, they've... These taking by your own initiative, there's this little problem, there's this weakness, there's this challenge, and there's this feeling of distance from God, or there's this desire to be accepted by God. And so you say, okay, I need to fix this. I need to, by my own initiative, I need to make it better. And what happens is we die. And this is exactly what the law does. It's exactly what idols do. We pursue it out of comfort. We pursue it out to fix something deep within our heart. And what happens is we actually get further from God and further from the gospel. And it shapes us into a person that we never really wanted to be in the first place. And God's people here in Galatians, they've abandoned God's grace by worshiping something other than God. And by, they've abandoned God's grace by taking their own initiative to find him. And he pleads with them to trust him. Will you trust God? And the Old Testament story goes like this. There was a man, Abraham, who had two sons and by two different women. And God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, you will be the father of a great nation. And Abraham says, I don't even have a son. How will I be the father of of a nation? I don't even have an heir. And the only person who would get all my stuff is my servant. He says, but I will give you a son. And so years go by, 16 years go by. Abraham's very old. He's 90 years old when the promise is made to him. His wife is very old. And they both become, they come, they feel despair. They become desperate. They say, I don't know what God means by this promise. And my faith is, is becoming difficult to hold on to this. And so maybe we should take it into our own hands. And so Abraham conceives a child with his slave, Hagar. And then God eventually, well, God says to them, you have taken matters into your own hands. You now have a son, but this isn't the son of the promise that I've promised to you. You will have a great nation, but it will not come through Ishmael, the son of Hagar. And so God fulfills his promise and he gives them a son, Isaac. And God is very clear, you now have two sons that will be great nations because I promise through your offspring there will be a great nation. And so Ishmael will will be the father of a great nation, but Isaac will be the father of the promise. He, through him, through your son that you had with Sarah, the promise will rest with him. And I will be the God of these people, and these people will be looking to me as their God. Abraham's spiritual relapse, his lack of faith, his taking his life into his own hands by his own initiative caused and still causes great pain. But God is faithful and his promises are true. And this is what Paul is saying in this story. He says, he provides for us. The unfolding of his promises to us will come true. He is proven trustworthy. You can trust in him. And by faith, we like Isaac, Paul tells us, are children of the promise. 
So if you are children of the promise, or you, if you are in, in a family of Isaac by faith, why would you act like Ishmael? Why would you act like a child of a slave? Why would you be like a slave yourself? Why would you abandon the grace that God has given to you by having all these non-gods influence your life? Don't you know that you belong to a child of the promise? Don't you know that you yourself are a child of the promise? Are you, in the, are you in the midst of some difficulty? Are you in the midst of some kind of challenge? See, you will at some point, if you haven't already, you'll want to shrink back. You'll want to say, this faith thing, this pursuing God, it's really hard. What if I just keep doing that, but if I just kind of bring a couple other things that make me feel comfortable? Maybe if I just have this spiritual relapse in these areas, but I still have God in my sights. What if I do that? You're going to want to turn back to something that provided comfort to you other than God. You'll want to take things into your own hands. And if you try to just be better and be righter and be more appealing to God and trying to earn this acceptance and position with God through your own initiative, you will only create greater problems. But instead, if you trust in God's promise, His work, His grace, then you are a child of God and you share in all that Christ has. We, every single day, will be taking things We'll be trusting in our own initiative and taking things in our own hands, or we'll be trusting in, in God's intervention. It is one or the other, our initiative or God's intervention. And Paul is encouraging us in them. He's saying, look what God did. Abraham took things into his own hands, but God intervened. He, fulfilled, he gave what he said he was going to do. So receive this comfort. God knows you at your worst, and he still wants to save you. He knows you at your absolute worst. And He still loves you. And being a Christian is not so much about what we know about God, but what God knows about us and does anyway. And this is what Paul says even in this passage, how he says, you've come to know God rather to be known by God. How can you turn back? This means that our acceptance is not based on how much we know or how much we obey, but it's based on God's knowing of us and giving us a promise that we receive by faith in Him. And our aim, even Jesus says this, He says, this is eternal life, that you would know God the Father and the Son whom He has sent. Knowing God is the essence of the Christian faith. Knowing Him, knowing Him more, And the more we know Him, the more we will worship Him. And the more we know Him, we'll come to realize that He knows us so fully. He knows us even before we began to know Him. And here's what Paul says as his life is coming to a close. He says, I want my aim to know God as much as He knows me. What a beautiful picture that is. And he says, I see Him now like through a looking glass. It's kind of cloudy, it's kind of fuzzy, but He sees me so clear God knows me at my worst, and he still has given himself up for me. He knows everything in your heart. He knows everything that you think. He knows all the idols and gods that you go to instead of him for comfort, and he still has given himself to us. That is what we hold on to. That is what we rest in. 
Let's do that as we pray. Let's pray together. For more audio and information, please visit holycrosstucson.com.